This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, an update from Northern Saskatchewan. Tom Vernon is there. We'll get the very latest and we'll speak with Ari Goldkind and find out why was this suspect on the loose in the first place? We'll also get an update on the UCP leadership race with candidate Leela Ahir. The Bank of Canada hikes interest rates by another three quarters of a percentage point. We now have the names of um, the many, many victims of the tragedy in northern Saskatchewan. They were released uh, earlier this morning and... Um, 10 victims plus uh, one victim who we believe uh, was one of the suspects, originally identified as a suspect, that's Damien Sanderson. Still on the loose is Miles Sanderson, one of the victims, Robert Sanderson. Any relation? A absolutely no idea. Anything we say at this point would be pure speculation. 49-year-old Robert Sanderson, uh, one of the victims, and there was also six people with the last name Burns. So uh, you would have to assume at least some of them in some way related. Um, just more more of the story uh, around this tragedy. To get the very latest on what's going on, the manhunt that continues for Miles Sanderson, we're going to check in with Tom Vernon now. Tom is a provincial affairs reporter for Global Edmonton, and he is currently in northern Saskatchewan covering the story. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, happy to jump on, Chip. So yeah, at this point, Miles Sanderson, the, the outstanding suspect in all of this, uh, still at large, right? And uh, it seems like there's even less of an indication as to where he might be at this point. Yeah, they still don't know. So there was that alert yesterday, just before noon, of potential sightings on the James Smith Cree Nation. RCMP members scrambled to the scene. We have uh, visuals of you know, several vehicles just flying into the scene to search the area. Uh, there was a a, uh, people were being told to secure in place. Don't come outside. Yeah. Make sure you are inside a uh, lockdown. We went to a community uh, about 10 minutes away from here, Canisto. I'm currently in uh, Weldon, Saskatchewan. We went to Canisto, went to a grocery store there. and there was, There's only one door in, and that door was locked, and they're only letting you in if they could see who you are. And uh, So there's obviously a lot of concern in the community. Then at 3 o'clock, another alert comes. That there was no evidence whatsoever that uh, Miles Sanderson was on the Cree Nation yesterday. Police later in the day said, we searched homes, we searched the wooded areas surrounding the community, no evidence he's there. And at this point, we don't know where he is. So they're telling everybody to be on the lookout. You see anything suspicious, even if it's a small little thing, call police, give them that piece of information. So at this point, there's a lot of fear in these communities up here about where exactly Miles is and how long it's going to take to bring him into custody. Yeah, not only do they say he's not uh, on James Smith Cree Nation, they're also saying, now they don't believe he's in Regina anymore, which was the focus for a long time, now saying he's not there. So it seems like at this point, at least what they're saying publicly, Tom, and they may know more behind the scenes, of course, but at this point, it, it's a province-wide, at minimum, search. Yeah, I mean, the last known sighting, the last I mean, confirmed sighting, would have been 11.45 Sunday morning. That's a lifetime ago on a manhunt, yeah. right? We're on day four of the manhunt. So there's, I mean, boots on the ground. When we were driving back to Prince Albert from Weldon last night, we saw four different uh, police vehicles, uh, law enforcement vehicles driving on the highway. So they're out, they're out looking. But yeah, at this point, they don't know. They do not know where he is. 
Yeah, and as you mentioned, a lot of tension, a lot of fear in the communities, understandably, right? Uh, locked doors. I mean, have you spoken with residents or they must be just, you know, hoping and, and praying that this ends soon and so far as he's arrested? Yeah, I mean, we spoke with, like here in Weldon, so this was the location where uh, 78-year-old Wes Patterson was killed. Um, we spoke with the residents yesterday and said, look, she's she's not sleeping. She's terrified that, that, that Miles Samson or whoever the, the suspect could come back, that the attacks could happen again. It was, it, she said it was so random on Sunday. Why couldn't it happen again? So she's absolutely terrified. But also mixed in is tremendous grief. I mean, you, you just read yeah. the names. The, the, Ten people have lost their lives. Family members are grieving. Victims, uh, friends are grieving these victims. Um, we're going to see vigils across Saskatchewan tonight in Regina, Saskatoon, and Prince Albert, candlelight vigils. Um, I believe in a couple, in about an hour and a half, we're going to hear from some family members of these victims who are just going through, I imagine, a tremendous amount of grief at, at this sudden loss. Um, we heard from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Mullen. He says he's feeling it, and, and the province is feeling it. So it's fear and grief gripping people here right now. Yeah, absolutely it is. Tom, thanks so much for the update. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. That is Tom Vernon, Provincial Affairs Reporter for Global Edmonton, calling in from northern Saskatchewan. As he said, he's near Weldon, um, Saskatchewan. One of the victims was from Weldon, 77-year-old James Pedersen, as he mentioned. To give you the list of the other names, um, and these are the names that we should remember when all this is said and done. Eleven people lost their lives, including one of the suspects, as I said. That's Damian Sanderson. The victims in this, Thomas Burns, 23 years old, of the James Smith Cree Nation. Carol Burns, 46 years old, Gregory Burns, 28 years old, Lydia Burns, 61 years old, Bonnie Burns, 48, Earl Burns, 66. Now, you would assume there is some sort of uh, family relationship there, at least with some of them, but we don't know that at this point. All we know is the names, and there's photographs of each of them, but... Um, you know, six of the victims have the same last name in a very small community. So um, you can imagine that that's part of the story, too. In addition, we have Lana Head, 49 years old, and Christian Head, 54 years old. And then, as I said, uh, one of the victims has been identified as Robert Sanderson, 49 years old, of the James Smith Cree Nation. Um, of course, uh, the two suspects in this case are Damian Sanderson and Miles Sanderson. And uh, are these people related? We're, we don't know. Uh, again, pure speculation, but the name is there. And Wesley Pedersen of Weldon, Saskatchewan. So we now know the names of the people who lost their lives in this tragedy. Still a lot more around this story, though, uh, in terms of how was Miles Sanderson out, even though he had 59 charges laid against him in 31 years. So uh, we're hearing some uh, word from the federal government on that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. 
back to uh, the story of the Saskatchewan situation, the stabbing spree that took place on the James Smith Cree Nation. As you know, uh, ultimately 11 people dead, one of them uh, a suspect, Damien Sanderson. Um, the names of the other 10 were released this morning as well. Six of them share the last name Burns. Uh, not sure if they're related or how they're related. That information will be uh, forthcoming as we go along here. One of the victims also named Sanderson. 49 years old. Um, what's the relation to Damien and Miles Sanderson? The two suspects don't know. Don't know if there is one. But of course, that's another question that's going to be asked today as well. In the meantime, the suspect in all of this, the lone, lone surviving suspect at least, Miles Sanderson, remains on the loose, has not been found. Uh, originally reported to be in Regina. Police saying yesterday that, yeah, they don't think he's necessarily there anymore. There were reports that he was back at the James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, police responded and then went public and said, yeah, we we didn't find him here either. So at this point, it doesn't appear they have a very good handle on just where he might be. The question a lot of people have asked is, we should know exactly where he is, and that should be behind bars. Why on earth was this person um, out in the community to begin with? We've gone through his record. 59 charges by the age of 31, many of them violent, um, was granted parole parole board saying they thought it would actually be a benefit to public safety if he was released because it would help with his rehabilitation. Clearly, they were grossly, grossly mistaken and uh, with tragic results. So let's get some details on how all this comes about. We're going to chat with Ari Goldkind, uh, a legal analyst. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time, sir. Great to be with you on this horrifying story for a whole number of reasons. Yeah, no doubt. We'll get to the parole in a minute. Ari, first of all, four years, four months, 19 days, a year of probation, 59 charges, many of them violent, including punching and kicking a police officer in the face. Um, how on earth does somebody in that position get a sentence of under five years on their 59th charge? Well, there's two reasons for it. One, because we live in a stupid country that really doesn't understand that the fact that in a battle between good and evil, evil continually wins out over the law-abiding, the peaceful. And the part of the story, before I get to number two, which is the word you're not allowed to say because we live in woke world, as to why these sentences are so low, one of the worst parts about this is that very often for this kind of crime by these kinds of criminals, whether it be in urban areas in downtown Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, or on the James Cree Reserve, the people that are butchered or mowed down, just like we see in the south side of Chicago, are not people who live in Martha's Vineyard, are not people with the last name Trudeau, or billionaires who live in gated communities. They're the very people in these communities that are preyed upon by these kinds of killers. And that, to me, is one of the more upsetting parts of the story. And that is literally how our country does the business of criminal justice. The second part, again, is because he ticks a demographic checkbox that everybody is going to purse their lips and get cowardly about today. And that straight from the Supreme Court on down, as soon as you check that demographic checkbox, whether anybody says it openly or not, and many will say it openly to their credit, that can and often does greatly reduce your sentence. And the third part, and I'll digress here, is what was it supposed to be? The 60th time right. was the charm. The 59th time didn't do it. And 
you know, there's a regime in the criminal code. And as a criminal defense lawyer, I see it applied, in my view, sometimes too often. We should, before our segment ends, talk about what a dangerous offender finding is and why it was never sought for this man. We will. We definitely will. I want to back up a bit, though, because you're not the only person to raise the issue of demographics and how that plays into sentencing and parole decisions in this country. Now, I know there's legal. um, you're, You're not just saying that. Ari, there is actual legal um, oh, precedent it, it, you're, it, it, you're it, it, citing it, it, here. Walk yeah. us through some of that. Sure. This is not the Ari Gold kind opinion, as controversial or contentious as I can sometimes be, even though I'm very proud to be a criminal defense lawyer and take that job very seriously. Every person, if Miles Sanderson called me tomorrow and said, I want you to defend me, I would drop everything I would do and I would defend him to the hilt. I want your audience to have no confusion about that. But I'm not here on one side or the other. I'm here as an analyst. And when I tell you that this is how the sausage is made, this is a feature, not a bug, of our sentencing regime. Any one of your listeners, and they should only do it after your show is off air and we're done talking because nobody should split their attention from us. Of course. You can Google a case called the Queen and Gladue, G-L-A-D-U-E. And in almost every single sentencing matter involving an Indigenous person who were constantly told are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, in the penitentiary system. By that thinking, there are people who are so far wide of the spectrum on a certain side of it, by the way, that would say, arguably, that Miles Sanderson adds to that problem if and when he goes to jail. Think that through. But you'll see, and the reporting is there, so this is not my opinion, that courts and parole boards have surmised that because he ostensibly or allegedly or claimed to or there was documentation of a difficult upbringing, and I'm not going to get too far into any of that, as soon as that is raised, you don't even have to prove that you've been abused or anything like that. You just simply have to show certain things that we don't have time to get into. Your sentences, absent a whole other number of factors, Mm -hmm. are going to be less and the courts will treat you very, very differently on your acts than if your name is Shay Ganim. Yeah, and you know, and Ari, and I, you know what, I mean, even, I'm a guy who can say, you know what, that makes sense in some cases. Uh, but when you've got an instance like this where you've got violent offenders, proven, proven to have no problem being extraordinarily violent, that need, in the interest of public safety, that's the thing that bugs me about the parole decision, and I want you to talk about that. Um, In the interest of public safety, it would be better to have him out from behind bars because it would help with his rehabilitation. I mean, at some point, doesn't incarceration, okay, it's a punishment, it's a deterrent, but at the same time, doesn't it keep the rest of society safe? Well, that's the whole idea of separating offenders from society when they shouldn't breathe the same air as you and I. Let's go a step further. Let's make this even more interesting to listeners. You'll recall you and I talked a number of months ago about a gigantic Supreme Court decision where if you're a serial killer or you take more than one life, remember the Harper government, never overturned by the Trudeau government, remember this, said, look, if you kill three or four people, you're Robert Pickton, you're Paul Bernardo, you're Bruce MacArthur, every life you take should matter in the parole calculation, okay? So that every life isn't taken. The Supreme Court came along in a decision that I could do an hour with you on easily, came along and said, that's cruel and unusual. You shouldn't deprive the Moss killer, Bissonette, or Miles Sanderson, 
you shouldn't deprive him of the right to apply for parole after 25 years. Anything more would be cruel and unusual. I go back to this central point. There are people that commit crimes that are an aberration. Uh, It's a momentary lapse of judgment. Something happens, provocation, loss of control, you name it. There's all sorts of things across this country. But then there are people that are absolute ticking time bombs. But because we live in woke world, and believe me, believe me when I tell you, every judge and every parole board member is aware that we live in woke world. Let me quote to you what the parole board says, because you started it. Let me conclude the paragraph that I think should make the people on that reserve and the people who were butchered to death, because that's what stabbing is. Absolutely, yeah. That's right. And it is butchering a human being, okay? Vulnerable people themselves being butchered. Here's what the parole board said. It's our opinion that you will not present an undue risk to society. Your release will contribute to the protection of society, by facilitating your reintegration into society as a law-abiding citizen. Now, the kicker to that is that everybody knows it's horse manure. But the parole board's hands were in some ways, and in fairness to the parole board, I've I've got to say this. Hmm. Because he got the statutory release, this was not early parole. That's right. There was very little they could do with him. There are are opportunities when you get to two-thirds of your sentence that you're so dangerous that you're held in. It's almost never done. Don't get me started on that. But what escapes scrutiny here, and I've seen everybody going all off on the parole board, okay? Everybody's done that. There needs to be some journalistic inquiry here into the prosecutorial office of who prosecuted him last that said, this man who's 31, who was a ticking time bomb, and everybody knew it. You left out the part about terrorizing the kids in the bathtub. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can go through, we went through the whole case yesterday. I mean, there's, there, there's about there seven or eight incidents that just, you know, make your skin crawl. And here's the point. No matter where you live, whether you're near an Indigenous community, whether you're on a reserve, whether you live in downtown Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, Calgary, you name it, when the criminal code literature says, we know that somebody is a ticking time bomb, a very live question should be asked as to why a prosecutor didn't seek what's called the dangerous offender designation for him. And I can tell you, as sure as I'm sitting here, and I am sitting, if a prosecutor would have sought that with the 59 previous convictions, you don't even need 59 previous ones. You could have one, two, Mm -hmm. you could have none. I can tell you that this would not have been the parole board's doing, He would have been behind bars, and these people would not have died in vain. And I will tell you that what you're going to hear in the weeks to come from a certain side of the spectrum that has an L before its word and a T at the end of it is that we need to spend more billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars on these issues. I'm telling you, that won't fix it. Having some prosecutorial spine will but you are faced with the Supreme Court guidance that we talked about a moment right. ago. Yeah. This is a very sad situation. Ari, can you hang on for a minute? Of course. Yeah, I want to get into the dangerous offender and what might happen if sure. this guy's brought in. But uh, I need to take a break. So we're with, chatting with Ari Goldkind, legal analyst. Uh, we'll take a quick break and be back with him right after this. Chatting with Ari Goldkind, legal analyst, about this situation surrounding Miles Sanderson and why he was out in the first place. And um, Ari... 
Uh, just to get into this for a second, a couple of different things. We'll do dangerous offender in a sec. First of all, uh, this two-thirds mandatory. I mean, so if you're sentenced to six uh, years in jail, the odds of you doing any more than four are slim to none. It's called statutory release after two-thirds, right? Well, let's actually take your listeners more into behind the scenes. If you get a six-year sentence, it's very unlikely that you're going to do more than two. You're going to get released at the one-third mark, absent certain things. I'm not good at math. I'm hoping two out of six. I think you're right. I I hope so. But that's why I'm a lawyer, not a scientist. (laughs) But in any event, the point of the story is most Canadians don't know that. And I mean that very sincerely. You'll read a headline every day in your city, mine, and various towns across this country where somebody gets 10 years. Well, what it really means is they get three and a third. Yeah. You'll You'll also see, and I'll just make the point here, as much as we make fun of our neighbors to the south, You take a look at what they think about violent crime and what the sentences people get there for rape, uh, child abuse, other things. Certain things they do there are out of skew, drug possession and, you know, ruining people's lives over nonviolent crime. But they take these things seriously. And the moral of the story, before we move on to your question, is we're just moving more and more. I blame anti-social media. I believe that there's a minority that rules us that do not speak for the majority but pretend they are where it's always the law-abiding, the law-abiding, ordinary, average, tax-paying, peaceful citizen that has to pay for the sins of the evil. And you'll know, and I'm going to make this point, and I'm hoping your listeners know what I'm talking about. There's a teacher that was killed last week uh, down south in the United States, a kindergarten teacher, and she was killed by a man in the same situation with some differences as Sanderson. Demographics play into a part... This was a man that should have never been out with the opportunity to kill her. And the reason this story will pass, and it will pass, is because the kinds of people killed are the people that most deserve protection. Not Krista Freeland and Justin Trudeau and, you know, conservatives and NDPs who all have private security details and people who live in gated communities. That is the out-of-touch nature of our criminal justice system. And I can assure you, If this happened and Miles Sanderson took the life of powerful people, there'd be a much greater earthquake happening in Canada right now. And I assure you this earthquake next week, we'll be talking about some Kardashian nonsense or something else. Um, Ari, dangerous offender. Uh, We know that it gets thrown around. uh, It gets applied sometimes in this country as well. Fifty nine charges. But it doesn't necessarily, it's not number of charges, right? It's severity. I mean, how do we decide that, okay, you know what? That's enough. It's not three strikes and you're out, but it's along the same lines. We're just not going to deal with this anymore. So let me explain this because I think it's the one thing that's not being talked about as a result of the Sanderson's. I believe that the one brother who's on the lam now probably killed his brother. That's what it sounds like, yeah. Yeah, talk about Cain and Abel. Then you talk about the police searching for him since May. They weren't searching for him. You know how many thousands of people are unlawfully at large in your province and mine that nobody's looking for, that's a horse manure line that's being fed to the public as well, by the way. And that lack of searching, and I'm not faulting the police for it. It's, again, a feature of our system, not a bug. Mm -hmm. There are people dead and butchered as a result of it. Here's dangerous offender, the regime, as simply as I can put it, you don't need to be a lawyer to understand this. There are people that will commit a crime. That crime fits a risk profile that's thought to be high risk, but they're viewed as a ticking time bomb. So what do you do? What a prosecutor does in Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina, 
You simply make an extraordinarily quick application to a judge. I mean this sincerely. And you say, pursuant to a, a, a section in the criminal code, I won't get into the weeds, we would like this person's risk to be analyzed by a court-appointed psychiatrist trained in this issue. The threshold for that assessment to go out is extraordinarily low. And when I say extraordinarily, I mean as low as you can think. Then at least you get a report that comes back to the Crown Attorney and the judge. And if that person is such a high risk to reoffend, you have what's called the dangerous offender proceeding, and it prevents that person from honestly and realistically, no matter what anybody tells you, ever breathing the same air as you and I. And that is a part of this story that if Miles Sanderson didn't tick that box when you take woke world and demographics out of it, I can point to you right now on your air five to ten examples of people who were found to be dangerous offenders who were not one iota dangerous with the track record or or without as Miles Sanderson. Interesting. Okay. Um, All right. uh, Thank you so much for your time. As always, I appreciate you being here. switch gears here talk about the ucp leadership for the next little while um first and foremost and and, and i'll get into more detail about it later we had a bunch of conversations yesterday about people who had their ballots were receiving their ballots and were all upset about the ballots um because i don't want to have to vote for anybody but okay you don't don't um the ballot comes you're being asked to vote uh it's a preferential ballot so you don't just mark an x for your candidate they're saying put a one beside your favorite candidate two, your second favorite three and you can vote for as many or as few as you want if you want to vote for just one candidate go ahead and do that if you want to vote for all six go ahead and do that too um okay there's a lot of conversation yesterday i don't want to have to vote for more well you don't have to you can vote literally for as many as you want okay if you want to vote for all of them go ahead rank them if you don't you don't have to um we've gone through a round of interviews with all of the candidates prior to um memberships being closed and and ballots going into the mail and now that that has happened we're going to start round two of our interviews and we've already got uh, many of them lined up and we're going to start today with uh lila here who is a leadership candidate as you know and an mla for chestermere strathmore um ms here thanks so much for joining us i appreciate your time hey say how's it going good good how are you doing Oh, it's been been great. I love I actually love campaigns and I love meeting with people. It's wonderful to hear from folks across the province. It's been a real privilege. That's what I wanted to ask you. Now that the ballots are in the mail, things change a little bit. But what do mm-hmm. you think about how the campaign has gone thus far? First of all, personally, has it gone? Have you had as much um, has it been the campaign that you wanted to run when this all started? <laughs> There's been so much that's happened. I mean, you know, like it's been in the news, some of the stuff that's happened, but the the resilience of people. I mean, I'm a born and bred Albertan. You you live and breathe on resilience and strength. And, you know, when, when challenges are put in front of you, you figure out ways to navigate around that. And I think that a leader and a premier has to be able to show that strength no matter what the situation is. You can't, there's always going to be personal stuff, right? There's always going to be things, there's toxicity in politics that will always occur. But, you know, to be level-headed and be able to handle those things and to be able to go forward even under those extreme situations, I think, is really important. What about the campaign in general? Not just uh, your own campaign, but generally speaking, the entire leadership campaign through the debates, through the issues. Do you think Albertans have 
heard what they needed to hear. Has the party dealt with the the real issues that Albertans are facing? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think so. What, one of the things that I think has been difficult, I would say, is that there is so much that's coming out from government right now, which in some ways, I mean, it's good to see that government is actually listening. The leadership candidates have all had some really good ideas, right, right across the board. And you can see some of that being reflected in government right now. But the bigger issue is, is that it also shows the disconnect between what is happening in government and what is happening with caucus and what is happening with Albertans. A lot of what you're hearing right now has never seen the light of day in caucus. And it, it really describes for a lot of people why we're here in this leadership race in the first place. So if you're asking, Albertans are looking for unity. They're looking for strong leadership. They're looking for, uh, you know, consensus building and they're looking for collaboration and they're looking for, you know, people who can work together. So on one hand, you have leadership candidates that are really, I think, from their own perspectives, my, myself included, really trying to find ways to navigate that. But then you have things that are happening in government right now that are not being consulted even with the can- with, with the regular with the regular caucus, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that for those of us, and I'll just speak for myself, for for me, the, you know, being able to show to Albertans um, that the the future of our party will not have this same sort of mandate with this top down approach. That this, there will be all of the all of the MLAs are very very good people. They have been elected by their constituents. They understand the heartbeat of their constituencies, and they're they're there in order to be able to represent those people. Those voices really matter, Shane. And to anybody who's a leader or a premier of the province, that voice has to be part of the determining factor of the go forward. And so we have to go to show at Albertans that we can do that. And as you say, that's sort of the the whole intent of this leadership contest was to restore unity because we know the party had become deeply, deeply fractured and it ultimately led to the ouster of Jason Kenney. Um, Do you think, and and you're going to have competition within a leadership campaign, I understand that, but it seems to me that the division may have only gotten deeper within the UCP over the course of the past couple of months as this leadership contest has unfolded. Would you agree, or is this this what needs to be done for the UCP? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because I think both sides are true. There's, there's definitely fractures. I mean, I think that's been obvious in the debates, right? Um, and you also have, like, you know, there's so much talk around COVID and all of this, but we have leadership candidates that actually were in those COVID cabinets, right? who made those decisions. And like with anything, if you're going to build unity, you have to acknowledge what you were responsible for. You have to be able to move forward with those decisions and you have to be able to show what you're going to do differently in order to be able, like what we're trying to do right now is earn back the trust of Albertans. Mm -hmm. For me, this is, this is really important. If I get a second chance here, Shay, an opportunity to be able to lead our province forward the way that I believe that Albertans want us to lead forward, that second chance, it requires a tremendous amount of humility and an ability to really, really involve people. We have right now in this province, um, such growth opportunity. I mean, look at where we're headed, the trajectory, the economic stability, all of this. The word that really, really, I think probably I hear the most is about collaboration. People are tired of fighting. Um, the, the left and the right have used the people of Alberta as, you know, they've been used in collateral damage in a ground war. And people are tired of that. They want to know that their government has their best interest. It's about human-centered policy, not policy that is ideological, not policy that's going to actively go out to try and demean or hurt one group or another. Um, it is about elevating. Conservatives are supposed to elevate. We are the, 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 
the voice of the people. That's what we're supposed to be. And getting back to those fundamental principles is what this leadership race is all about, at least for me. It's been extremely humbling. Um, there's a lot of, and that fracturing, as difficult as that may be, when, don't you actually want to, I want to know where people are at. I cannot appropriately lead and be a good premier if I do not know where people's voices are at. And you, as hard as those conversations that they are, they are we might be vehemently disagreeing with what people are saying, but you don't know how to lead forward or how to be able to help this province if you don't know what the voices of the people are. Going forward, this all wraps up uh, less than a month now, October 6th. Um, after that vote, first and foremost, if you don't win leadership, do you run as an MLA in the upcoming spring election? And number two, should Danielle Smith win this and put forward on day one the Sovereignty Act, do you vote to support that? Uh, no, I will not vote in, in favor of the Sovereignty Act. Of course, I'm. <laughs> it's funny to even ask. I haven't seen it. There is no Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> you know, the one of the things that as, as, um, as legislators, and I've been a legislator for seven years now, so I have some skin in the game. You don't ever talk about whether you're going to vote or not vote for a piece of policy you haven't seen yet. It's actually really inappropriate, right? But you have to be able to put your foot down when you're hearing about a mandate that will actually lead to separation. And I don't recall ever in the history of our party when we were Wild Rose or when we came together as the UCP that separation was a part of our mandate. I don't even know how we got to a point where that discussion would be relevant within this party. Maybe, you know, maybe Danielle needs to start a different party and work on that and have that, that at the, you know, if that's where people are at, if there's a group of people who feel that way, then that might be a mandate for that. Well, to be fair, Danielle says it's not about separation. It's just exerting sovereignty within the Constitution. It's not about separation. Sovereignty already exists in the Constitution. All of the things that she purports and that she talks about, and I appreciate her intelligence and the discussions that she's having, it already exists in the Constitution. This is redundant. First pieces of legislation that need to come out need to be about Albertans and about are vulnerable about age, about reindexing seniors' benefits, about getting people back on track. We're, you know what we hear when we talk to people, Shane? We don't hear about that. We hear about health care. We hear about education and funding that. We hear about how people are suffering through inflation. But also, like, for example, we met with um, the tourism industry last night. They're on a huge trajectory here for absolutely everything like the the sector is just going up and up and up and up but they're being impacted right now by federal policies there are things as a leader and as a premier that we need to address right now in order for alberta to lead canada i am so against any discussions that have us talking about leaving canada i want to be a leader we have our the best energy in the world we are resource stewardship people our agriculture our manufacturing our small businesses which are the heartbeat of this province our first nations treat like all of the things that we have been speaking about and working towards as a, as a province, we have every opportunity to be the place that everybody wants to come. We need to grow our population here. We need people to immigrate and immigrate into the province. We need to look at our labor shortage. We need to so many things that I could go on and on and on about with the province that we need to look at. We need to look at our fiscal responsibility. What are we doing with this? incredible windfall that we have coming in right now but that is happening because our brothers and sisters across the ocean right now are in the middle of a war these are things that we have to look at sustainability in a very volatile situation and adding that kind of chaos into situations that are already volatile based on our energy resource sector is 
going to drive investment away from Alberta. It will drive people away from Alberta. People need to feel safe to come here. They need to feel embraced and open, and we want to bring more people into this province. I am all about a yes. I want people to come here. I want them to be excited. I want to inspire people to see the province through my eyes, a province that I love and that I have committed my life to. And I will be here for the long haul. You know me. I stick it out. I always will. Okay. Um, it's, it's never been about me. It's about the people of Alberta. Um, speaking with Leela here, a UCP leadership candidate. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you get out of here. With uh, uh, less than a month to go here, um, personally, I, I, I don't think there's any question that Jason Kenney and our Lieutenant Governor both overstepped and and broke some of the norms uh, of a leadership race by sort of getting involved around the Sovereignty Act. Do you agree and do you think uh, it would be better if it was the candidates themselves left to fight this battle and everybody else should just wait their turn and uh, they'll get a turn, but maybe not right now? The the absolutely agree with your statement that this is amongst the leadership candidates. Absolutely imperative. There's no way that I, as a future premier, can make any headway when the sitting premier right now is making statements. And you know what the thing is? I don't disagree with what he said, but that's my statement to say. That is other people's statement to say. That is our ability to be able to chime in on that discussion on behalf of Albertans. Uh, Premier Kenny needs to hold the fort until a new leader is picked, and that is his job right now. That is his sole responsibility is to keep a stable hand on things and not to be injecting his conversations into any part of this leadership race. What about the lieutenant governor? Same rules apply to her? Oh, I think the rules apply right across the board. Yeah. Okay. I think so. And But I, if you read, and I'm, I, I'm so sorry that I can't comment as much on the lieutenant governor, but the she wasn't saying about intervening. My understanding was, and please correct me if I was wrong, is that she was asking for advice on what to do on this situation. And quite frankly, you know, when you're put on the spot to yeah. answer that, you answer the question. Whether she answered it correctly or not, I agree with you. There's just no place right now for people to be intervening in this discussion. Having said that, though, um, the fact that the lieutenant governor felt that she needed to have a response tells you about the level of chaos and concern and insecurity that is being injected into the province as a result of the Sovereignty Act. Uh, Ms. here. thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Another big headline news story today, I'm sure you've heard by now, Bank of Canada once again hiking its key interest rate to 3.25%. That's another three quarters of a point increase as of today and a full 3% since the start of this year. And the Bank of Canada says we may not be done yet, saying we may need to uh, take further action. 
to tackle high levels of inflation. So um, we've seen a real change in um, how things are in terms of borrowing money in this country, and it's going to affect people. When you see that kind of change in interest rates, it's going to hit bottom lines for a lot of people. And the more it goes up, the more people are going to be affected and the more people that are going to be concerned. To get some insight on where we are and where we might be going, we're going to chat with Taz Rajan, who is with Bromwich & Smith. Uh, she's a community engagement partner. Um, let's go. Uh, let's check in now with Taz. Hi, Taz. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, I mean, I don't think anybody's surprised to see the three-quarters of a point increase today, but, I mean, it's starting to really add up here, isn't it? We're now at 3% full increase since the start of the year. Yeah, unless you've been living under a rock, definitely you knew rates were going up. Yeah. I, I remember being a mortgage broker and warning my clients years ago, this is historically low. These rates are going to go <laughs> up for sure. I don't think any of us really expected it to go so high so quickly. I think we tend to be really optimistic and, you know, we hope things are going to level out and we're going to be able to, you know, manage it. And uh, that's what I'm wondering. We just saw there was a story on the national news yesterday talking about the fact that Canadians are taking on extremely high levels of debt right now. Uh, When you see that kind of news coupled with rising interest rates, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? You know, it can be exactly what you're saying. You know, you see rising interest rates, you see inflation where it's at. You know, we're still sort of recovering from all of that pandemic, um, you know, situation as well. The supply chain disruption, high oil prices, you know, the pent up demand. So it's quite the recipe, quite the potion. And of course, you know, this higher interest rate, it's, you know, significantly going to impact variable mortgages, lines of credit. Yeah student loans, right? These are the main areas that it does impact. But like you said, so many more Canadians are taking on more debt, and it is something that everyone needs to be paying attention to. Well, this is the thing. It's like you say, I mean, different kinds of debt will be affected differently. So if you're somebody out there wondering, boy, I keep hearing about this, uh, what what kind of debt? I mean, credit cards are, are, are murder for this, right? I mean, you can see those rates change pretty drastically. So credit card interest rate tends to already be quite a bit higher yeah. than what that Bank of Canada rate will be. Um, and they're already set. So anyone who's already got that, you know, 22% interest rate, you're still at 22% interest rate. Now, if you also have a variable rate mortgage or you have a line of credit and that rate has now gone up for you, you know, sometimes what we do is we'll move the balance on our high interest rate credit card. We'll move it over to our low interest rate line of credit now that is starting to really, you know, get us hot under the collar because that rate has also gone up and it may not be as viable for many Canadians. Is there any way of putting a number on it? I mean, I I know it's tough because everybody's in a different position. It depends how much debt and what debt you're carrying. But is there a way to sort of break it down and tell people, okay, it's going to cost you an extra 50 bucks, 500 bucks, 5,000 bucks? I mean, is there a way to do that? I can give you a real life example Perfect. of uh, one of our, our clients who had a variable rate mortgage and his mortgage payment was $1,300 a month. Pretty good, pretty reasonable. With the new interest rate hike, when he did go in to you know, renew it, he, he happened to come up. And this is these are the people that are really going to be affected, the people that are coming up for yeah. renewal now. Um, his new payment is $1,900. So from $1,300 to $1,900, $600 a month difference, 
that is going to have a significant impact on a household, especially, like I say, in, with inflation, many Canadians are just needing an extra $400 today to keep up with where they were six months ago. And now if, you're, if your payment on your mortgage has gone up another $600, in a way you're in a deficit of about $1,000 a month. And this is not, you know, not sounding alarms or, you know, being exaggerating. This is going to be very common for many Canadians, actually. And when you take a look at where we are, I mean, it doesn't look like the um, the further taking on of debt is slowing down. In fact, I know your uh, outfit did a, a survey where people are taking on more debt for back to school. Cost of living is going up and they think their debt's only going to continue to rise. Yeah, exactly. And we're definitely starting to see more and more Canadians actually reaching out for that help because they've sort of been, we've been in this nice low interest rate for quite some time. You know, we've been pent up. We've been wanting to get out there again and support local and do a little shopping and have some gatherings, right? So yes, people have started racking up the debt. It is the first back to school year where Students are actually live and in person. Activities are available. You know, we, we as parents have kind of felt like we've deprived our kids for a few years. So, you know, we are racking up that debt. And I think, you know, the biggest message I want to say is, if that's you, you're certainly not alone. You're not a bad human being. This is just real life. So let's normalize this conversation and let's just, you know, you're hearing about this interest rate rise. Great time to have a look at your, that's on a macro level. Let's get to a micro level in our own little household, in our own little budget. And let's pause and take a look. Okay, where am I? What is my debt load? What are my payments right now? How are the payments going to go up? And do I need some help? And one of the, the most courageous things we can do is seek out that right help when we start to feel that slippery slope. And you're so right. This is a perfect opportunity. No shame. It's just, hey, the, uh, the rules have changed and I want to make sure I'm still playing the game properly. So getting some advice, this is the perfect time to do it. Absolutely. And no shame, no stigma. Again, you're not alone. And, you know, I know when I struggled with debt, definitely felt completely isolated. Like I'm the only person going through this and that is not the reality. So let's get rid of that narrative. Big stigma out there. Great work. Thanks, Taz. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 